Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we're speaking with Dr. Byron Darnell, who serves as the head learner for Potter Gray Elementary School in Bowling Green, Kentucky. But in truth, he's a recovering high school English teacher. Byron is currently in his fourth year as leader of the K-5 elementary school. He feels it is truly an honor to be a part of the school's learning journey. He served the Iowa Department of Education as Bureau Chief of Educator Quality. Byron joined the Iowa Department of Education in July 2011. Prior to joining the department, he served 10 years as a high school English teacher, one year as an assistant principal in a pre-K through 8th grade school, and a year as a high school principal in Glasgow, Kentucky. So welcome, Dr. Byron Darnell. How are you? Doing quite well this morning. Thank you. Great. We are so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I'll do my best. So can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? Primarily, I'm a recovering high school English teacher. What? (laughs) That's, that's the lens that I value the most, and I spent nine years uh, as a high school English teacher. And since leaving the classroom, I've served as an assistant principal in a pre-K through eighth grade center, a high school principal, a department of education bureau chief, and currently elementary, I would like to use the term head learner slash principal. It's been a very uh, interesting journey, to say the least. Uh, exciting. I've had the great opportunity to view and work in many different settings within the educational system as a whole. Wonderful. And right now you're in an elementary school? Yes, I am in a K-5 with about 460 students. Okay. So, Byron, how would you describe your leadership style? My goal really is to answer one question and that's why would talented people want to work here? Mm. We all want to be part of a tribe that reflects our values and aspirations. For me, I think a great part of leading is working with others through an iterative process that works to define what the organization values most. And this shouldn't be about what I want, but rather the collective will of the community. And I cannot emphasize the word iterative enough. Too often, we just want to be done with something Mm -hmm. like, oh, we've done that. But in my mind, successful organizations always begin with their vision in mind and constantly question whether or not this is the right work and whether or not the vision meets the present needs and the future needs. I love that question. Why would talented people want to work here? How do you use that as a leader? Is this a question that guides you internally or do you ask this question of people? I would say it's really both. It's not always easy 
That's for sure, because you're trying to walk a line between bringing out the best in people and honoring where they are in the process of their journey, Mm -hmm. but also knowing what the expectations require in order to be a school that's in the best instance of students. So I want to always just try to ask myself, am I doing, do I feel I'm doing enough to support this individual or individuals? So I, I want to always turn it around on myself in terms of whether or not I'm providing the type of culture that's going to allow them to thrive. Hmm. It's much more difficult to navigate than working with, say, students. Uh, you know, our adult learners have different needs than our young learners. So for me, it's about working together a commitment amongst all of the adult learners that we are pulling in the same direction that we're working on creating a culture that compels people to want to come be a part of this organization Mm -hmm. so that it's just eminent throughout the building, that Mm -hmm. you feel it, it's palpable, and this is a place I want to be. And now it's certainly never perfect by Mm -hmm. any stretch Mm -hmm. of the imagination, but that is the compelling force that drives me in terms of how is our building to those that are looking outward and in? Mm -hmm. And is this a place that people that we know have great talent would want to come be a part of? Byron, it seems to me that you value creativity just based on this question. Is that right? Oh, I I think it's just crucial. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Crucial and difficult within our education system at large because we're not exactly known to be a creative organization in general. We're still greatly stifled by traditions, I guess, is the best way I can put it. Yeah, and I absolutely agree. Thank you so much for that. Now, can you tell us which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? Well, it's funny. They sort of change over time because you hear something and it speaks to you at that moment. And then a couple months later or a year later, you hear something else and it happens to really fit the particular space you're in. But I'm not sure who said this, but something to the effect of you can be a juicy ripe peach and there'll still be someone who doesn't like peaches. <laughs> that must have been from Georgia somewhere. It may have, but, you know, one thing is certain, you know, if you are leading, someone will be unhappy with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not pleasant yet necessary. And then by nature, we're not fond of change. Everyone agrees, yes, change is good, but deep down, no one really wants to change. Mm -hmm. And so when I heard or came across that particular phrase, it was just very poignant because there will always be someone who sees it very differently than you do. And regardless of all of the time and energy and work that you put in, you have to live with the fact that not everyone is going to come on board. Mm. You're going to have people that are going to work to resist what it is you're trying to move forward. I think that's a powerful quote, especially for us people pleasers, right? Exactly. Thank you so much for that. Now, Byron, what type of leader are you inspired by and why? Wow, there are so many, really. But I would have to say my favorite leaders are excellent storytellers. Mm. They have a way of relating their message by way of experiences. They're someone you want to sit down with and have coffee with just to listen to their journey. 
and their stories compel others to action and make others want to tell their own stories. Uh, author Frank McCourt immediately comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, McCourt was magical at telling these hilarious or heartbreaking stories about his time as an educator in New York that lead you to see why it's the best profession in the world, in my opinion. Hmm. Now, are you a storyteller? I definitely am a storyteller. Yes, Mm -hmm. I I feel that it just resonates with people. If you can create a narrative that sounds more like a script, something that people are following as opposed to dictating or telling someone, I just think people are going to, A, be more wrapped by what it is that you're trying to get across, and they're going to likely connect with it on a deeper level. I think it's pretty powerful, too, when you have that talent or you've developed that skill to tell stories because you're speaking to the hearts of people. And I find that in order to tell good stories, you have to be a good listener as well. There may not be a more important skill, uh, honestly. Having the patience to be present with individuals, to just sit and give them time to say what they need to say. And it sometimes seems laborious or it doesn't really match maybe what you feel you need to be doing with your time. But it is definitely the key to building a sense of trust with the individuals that you're working alongside of. And you said a key to building trust. And trust, to me, is the foundation of everything we do, right? It Um, is. Why is trust important in leadership? Well, it's just like anything else in our lives. We have to have a strong sense that this person has our best interests at heart, Mm -hmm. that they are looking out for us, not only as a part of the organization, but as an individual as well. And so the trust is the bedrock of anything that you're going to put in place that is going to be sustaining or lasting. Great. Thank you so much. Now, what's the best advice you've ever received? The current educational landscape has become so hyper-focused on quantifying results. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everything must be a number because, well, we seem to think we understand a number. Qualitative results are just too unreliable, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the other hand, you know, nothing has really changed. We're still emphasizing the same conversations of 10 years ago, such as the achievement gaps. So most research even indicates that the gaps are widening in spite of the NCLB and the race to the top eras that are behind us. Mm -hmm. So in light of this atmosphere, I hold tightly to the following advice. There is no substitute for good conversations. There isn't a plan. There is no tool that will make more of an impact than intentional deep conversations. And it is our duty to ask the questions that lead to thought and ultimately lead to personal change. There is no substitute for good conversations. It occurs to me that you really value the people you lead. How important is that in leadership? Well, that is my goal. And certainly that's a question that I ask often in terms of Have I worked to build the type of trust and lasting impact with the adult learners in my building? And certainly, again, I go back to the word iterative because, you know, time and context changes so rapidly. Mm -hmm. But 
it's just something that is very present and at the forefront of everything that I'm trying to do whenever I enter the building each day. So while I fail tremendously, it's certainly the goal as I enter a new day and striking up those important conversations and making people feel valued for what they're doing each and every day. Oh my goodness, Byron, you're full of wonderful nuggets. You said something that really resonates with a lot of us. We fail as leaders. What have you learned through your failures? Well, I describe education as the highs are really high and the lows are really low. And there really isn't a lot of middle ground. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would leave my school building each day more often feeling like a failure Mm -hmm. than I do feeling like a success. And, you know, part of that is just, um, you know, we tend to be uh, tough self-critics. And Mm -hmm. so that Mm -hmm. that's part of it. But I guess it's just easy to remember the things you didn't do well, more so than it is to remember the things that you did well that day. And so I guess my failures are always at the front of that inner dialogue I'm having with myself as I'm leaving for the day. And as I'm driving in to start the day, I'm thinking about how can I uh, make that better? How can I build on what I didn't do yesterday and hopefully sort of mend that today if I get the opportunity. So Mm -hmm. it's this constant working of the failures Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. hopefully improve the way I feel about it, I guess, is, Mm -hmm. is the best way for me to explain it. So you're always looking to better yourself, which is wonderful. Do you have a coach or a mentor that you connect with? Because I find that as a leader, it's necessary because we tend to really scrutinize our own selves. (laughs) But we need some people on the outside who can speak into our lives and to push us or either stretch us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, Heifetz in Leadership on the Line talks about uh, getting on the balcony, you know, having the ability when you're in the midst of the work that it is you're doing, you have to have this ability to get up on the balcony and look at it uh, mm-hmm. from an objective viewpoint as best as possible. And mm-hmm. so we're always going to be subjective because we're living it. We're mm-hmm. doing it every day. And while they say, don't take it personal, it's all personal. Because it's your work that you are crafting. And so the individuals that are further away from it certainly provide the best advice at times. And so, yes, I definitely have individuals that I count on to give me advice and I'll call and and say, I'm struggling with this, or I'm thinking about doing this. And, you know, what is your take on, you know, what you think my next step should be? And I think uh, Jim Collins calls it your board of directors, Mm -hmm. you know, who's on your board of directors. And you should always have at least a group of individuals that you trust are going to be honest with you and give you not always the information you want to hear, but the information that you need to hear. Those people should be on uh, speed dial (laughs) Uh, and readily available because, again, the work is complex at all times. And, you know, if you don't find those people that are honest with you, you're going to fall prey to people that want to tell you what you want to hear. 
And that isn't going to get you where you need to be in terms of moving something as complicated as an organization of human variables. Mm. Byron, I really appreciate um, your heart and how you bear that burden of responsibility because the future that you're responsible for calls us to do that. It calls us to really scrutinize what we do because it's such an incredible responsibility. So I want to honor you because that's exactly where we should be where we're always wondering did I do my best today and how can I do better tomorrow so thank you so much for the work that you do well you know it's about our youth and Mm -hmm. what they deserve I'm very thankful to do something that is not a job yes it is how I sustain myself and my family but It is more of a mission. It really is a calling. It's a double-edged sword Mm -hmm. because, you know, you are constantly living it 24 hours a day. And we know that that's not always the most healthy way to be from your own personal sanity and (laughs) health perspective. But it really is. It's just a mission. And it's just something that I can't turn that off. I haven't found a way that I can just leave for the day and be done and then start again tomorrow. It's it's a 24-hour conversation about getting better and providing the best opportunities for students that we possibly can. Awesome. Thank you. Now, Byron, what does it mean to have a good team and how do you build or sustain one? I think that Jim Collins talks about cumulative consistency. Uh, People definitely like to know what to expect from a leader. So I think it's important to be steady. Mm -hmm. People should rarely, if ever, be caught off guard. Naturally, this plays into building trust, the crucial component to any successful organization. And another factor, in my opinion, is asking great questions. Mm -hmm. A great team thrives on questions, not answers. A great team has evidence to point to illustrating success. And most importantly, have fun together. Uh, If fun is not being had, then it's just not worth it. Mm -hmm. Now, how long have you been at the current position? This is year four in this school building. So initially, how did you start to build that trust? My first point of action was to provide one-on-one time with all of the staff here in the school. So as I transitioned into this position, I offered time slots for people to schedule and just come in one-on-one and listen to their story Mm -hmm. and how they see the school and talk about their strengths and how they add value to this organization. So again, it was really just carving out time to sit down with everyone that has a role in this building to find out how they view themselves as part of this organization's success. Wonderful. Now, did you provide time where they could ask questions of you and get to know you better? Absolutely. And it's difficult at times. You know, we're having a conversation and I'm talking a lot (laughs) because you are asking me the questions, but (laughs) you have to temper your need to talk because it's easy to carry the conversation and try to fill in the gaps. And this is just something that, you know, I need to work on constantly. And that's just giving people time to say what they need to say and try not to talk over them or Mm -hmm. talk for them. 
You know, I appreciate what you're saying too, because allowing people the time to ask you questions also opens the door for being vulnerable and authentic so that your team, your staff gets to know you as well. And that's what continues to build trust. So I appreciate you giving us insight on that. Well, something that is in leaders that I've had in the past that, you know, I've admired you know, they say, I have an open door policy. Mm-hmm. You know, my door is always open. And, and I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with saying that. And I've said it many times, you know, my door is always open. I want you to come see me if it's important to you or if it's bothering you, please come see me. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really play out in the way it sounds a lot of cases because people tend to rely on their peers or they would rather go say something Mm -hmm. to someone down the hall as opposed to coming to me. Mm -hmm. And so something that I've really had to kind of rewire and think about is it's my responsibility to go to them. Mm. That I need to be the initiator to be out in this case in the classrooms to daily make contact with those individuals and give them a chance to bring something up or say, hey, I, I need to talk to you later in the day. So I've really sort of rethought using that phrase, my door is always open to I just need to be out there meeting and greeting everyone in this building every day as much as possible, just again, to get that FaceTime and continue that conversation and hopefully uh, strike up opportunities for them to respond to a question or to ask me an opinion or to bring up something that they really need to talk about. You know, I put myself in the position of, let's say, a teacher in your building, and that says to me that you're a servant, that you care enough to come to me that you listen and that I can trust you. To me, it says that you value me. It also prompts me to engage with you much more than me coming to your office initially. Well, in a way, I guess it's kind of maybe an easy out because you're saying, look, I'm here. And again, it is true. And there's nothing nefarious about that at all. But I think as the primary leader in the building, it also takes away some of our responsibility to be the initiator, again, to seek out those opportunities to, you know, have a one, two minute conversation just about you know, hey, how was your weekend? Or, mm-hmm. oh, I heard your son had a game last night. You know, how did that game go? You know, what was the highlight of that game for you? And again, just those small conversations that get you into sometimes a necessary bigger conversation as mm-hmm. you get into the school year and, you know, all things happen. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's certainly always a work in progress. And again, I, I will say, you know, <laughs> I tend to remember my failures and and how I didn't get around the building or I didn't get to this individual. But I think it's important to be a part of the daily and weekly practice as much as possible. I just simply love that. You know, we as leaders, we need to hear people's perspectives and their stories and how they walk as leaders. And this certainly is something that I've not thought of. And I'm sure some of our listeners haven't either. So this is great. This is how we grow collectively. So thank you so much, Byron. There's still a very negative stigma in going to the principal's office. Uh (laughs) You're right. It it really stinks because, you know, you're sort of holed up with this uh, antiquated idea that you 
you don't go to the front office. You know, right. you don't you get called to the principal's office. And most of us would associate that with, you know, something negative yeah. and um, what did know, I do? I, I'm in trouble. Exactly. And for whatever reason, again, no matter how inviting you try to make the office or open you try to make the office, which is why I really don't spend much time in my office, it hangs, you know, it just looms over this position and how people associate their thoughts with it. And at the end of the week, I try to make calls home to parents and just as a how are things going conversation and just to get, you know, a two, three minute conversation about how the school year is going, you know, what's going well. Is there anything that you'd like me to know that, you know, could possibly take into consideration for improvement? But it's interesting because every time I call and I get a guardian or parent on the phone and I tell them who I am, there's always this pause. Um <laughs> uh, and they're waiting for the shoe to drop, you right. know. I get the, uh-oh, what happened? And I have to say, everything is fine. Everything is fine. I, I try to rescue the conversation right from the get-go, but it's just part of our associations with the principal of a school. If you're being contacted by the principal, then it is not a good thing. And mm -hmm. that's just something you have to acknowledge as a stereotypical association and mm -hmm. do your best to try and overcome that as much as possible. Now, you call parents at the end of the week. You have around 400 students? Yeah, about 450 students, give or take. And so how does that work? Five. So my kindergarten class, they're our newest members to the building. So I call all of the parents, and I just want to know mm -hmm. that things are going well, that they feel good mm -hmm. about their child coming here. And I just want them to know this is a family for you, and this is a place that we want you to feel absolutely positive in all ways. So I do try to emphasize uh, the kindergarten parents at the end of this first semester. Every Friday, I just randomly choose students uh, off of my master list, and mm -hmm. I just make calls home. Hey, leaders, this spring, we will be launching free 30-minute chats with guests we've had on Master Leadership Podcasts. This is a wonderful opportunity to connect and ask your questions. So stop whatever you're doing, unless you're driving, then you'll want to pull over and text the word CHAT, that's C-H-A-T, to 516-219-219. 9655. Again, text chat, C-H-A-T, to the number 516-219-9655 or register at masterleadership.org forward slash chat. So I'm interested in learning, and I'm not sure if you have this data, although I think you may, Doing that, has that increased parent participation? Because sometimes that can be a challenge. In this school, I'm very fortunate. We do have a lot of parent participation, mm -hmm. and it is something that we're very fortunate to have. So it's something that makes our building the success that it has been in the past and certainly in the present. And definitely cognizant of making sure our parents understand how thankful we are for them and their role in helping us be the type of learning environment that we strive to be. In terms of specific connections between that, I don't know exactly. Mm -hmm. I haven't really thought about it. That's a really good point to make and something I should probably try to correlate 
uh, a little more. But we can always use that information because as important as it is, it's a challenge to have parent participation, to have that connection. Well, typically to your underrepresented families, that to me is just something that I talk about a great deal, especially with my leadership team, just in terms of parents or guardians that do not come to school, you know, and making sure that we are reaching out to them on usually a weekly or monthly basis, trying Mm -hmm. to make contacts home. And, you know, I'm a big fan of home visits. You know, I'll go to their home. Oh, wow. Um, It sometimes makes people feel (laughs) uncomfortable, but I just show up. Oh, really? (laughs) Or during dinner, especially at a... It doesn't matter. (laughs) I will unapologetically do that. And I tell them, you know, I I don't expect to go in. Most do invite me in. It goes back to the open door concept. I can't just open my door and say, you know, here we are, please come to us. It just doesn't work that way, especially for students or parents of students that have had negative histories with school themselves. Mm -hmm. It's a place they don't want to come. They don't have a positive association with going to schools in their past, and they certainly oftentimes don't want to repeat that, even though they know it's in the best interest of their child or children. And so a way that I can try and make them feel more comfortable is to meet them in a place that they're comfortable, which, of course, in most cases would happen to be their home. But sometimes it's their place of work and it's that uh, stopping in two to three minute conversation, just expressing a genuine interest that we love your child. And I just want you to know we're committed to doing whatever it is we need to do to see them get a great education. Well, Byron, I think that's pretty powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? The challenge that has shaped me the most is something that is deeply personal, and it led me into education and what I'm doing today. I graduated from college, and you know, you always hate to put dates and time out there, especially the further it gets away. But especially when it's I, being recorded. That I know, I know, this is dangerous. But I graduated college in uh, May of 1996. Mm-hmm. And a little over a month after I graduated, a very unfortunate tragedy occurred within my home. And it involved both of my parents. And it just sort of devastated uh, my family and it drew everything to a halt. And so there was about a two year uh, suspension of life in general. And during this time though, I had a friend of the family Mm -hmm. encourage me to apply for a long-term sub position in uh, middle school. And I told her that I had no qualifications (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that she was crazy for asking me to do this. And she responded, you have an English degree, you have the requirements, and I really think this is something you should consider. Mm -hmm. So I decided to apply and I interviewed on a Wednesday afternoon in October And at the end of the interview, the principal asked me how I would feel about starting on Monday. (laughs) 
And I looked at him and I said, did you not hear the answers to the questions you asked me? I said, I don't think I'm qualified. And he goes, I think you'll do a great job. So I took the job and I started teaching seventh grade language arts on the next Monday in a school that had nearly 90% free and reduced lunch population and just a lot of challenges in the area. But the outcome is I finished the year with those students and I feel very sorry for them and I hope their lives are going well and that I did not damage them permanently. But during that time period, I was going through something deeply personal Mm-hmm. and struggling to sort of make sense of what had happened and just feeling hopeless in a lot of ways. And the classroom with the students that I had who also in different sense were in similar situations, not seeing a lot of light in terms of their future potential and just a great number of obstacles that were pulling them in the wrong direction. They gave me a place to pour my challenges and that experiences into and try to make sense of it. And it gave me a great deal of empathy And so at the end of that year, I finished and I decided that I would return to school to get my official teaching credentials and a master's and from that, the rest is history, so they say. Um, And here I am um, 18 years later and that is the challenge and the opportunity that has brought me into the position that I have currently. Wow. So the challenge that brought you into education, into teaching, helped you to connect with the students and you fell in love with the profession? Absolutely. I fell in love with the kids. Mm. I learned that I had a long way to go in terms of being a teacher, as any first year teacher is going to tell you. But You know, I had not gone to school for preparation to be a teacher, so I had to do a lot of learning on the spot, even more so than your typical first-year teacher. But yes, I just found that in understanding what it's like to question what is going on in your life and why it's going on, and really, is there any reason for me to continue to be hopeful about it? I just made connections with students and saying, you know, we can't have a victim mindset. Mm. You know, we can't sit back and, you know, just feel like because I didn't ask for this, then I just don't see any other options. So I'm just going to, you know, wade in this inability to be successful because I've had all of these things stacked against me. And it just gave me an avenue for having a significant level of empathy for them and saying, I understand. I really do. Mm-hmm. Even though our stories are different, I get it. I really do get it. And we're going to get through this together and we're going to be better at the end of it. And it's going to be okay. So it just really was as much, I guess, therapy for me as it was for hopefully those students as well. Mm. They help us so much more than they realize. Also, how you listened to the people that were speaking into your life at a time that was so difficult. I can see how that really shifted your life because you had no idea. This was your green grass, right? Absolutely. (laughs) You had no idea. No idea at all. And you stepped into it 
trusting even at a really hard time in your life. And I appreciate you sharing that. Now, Byron, can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? Well, this is the fun part. So when I went to work at the Iowa Department of Education, I left a bustling high school environment for the land of cubicles (laughs) housed in a pretty lifeless building. And it really brought me down that I didn't get to go into a building with students. Mm. And every day I walked into the Department of Education and I thought this is supposed to be the heartbeat of education Mm. in Iowa. Yet nothing about this environment says kids are important here. I didn't mean this to be derogatory, but the physical environment was void of anything representing schools. So I decided we needed a means of getting students into the Department of Education. So I began the process of developing an application for students in grades 8 through 12 to become part of what we titled the Iowa Learning Council. And we received around 60 applications from all across the state. And a panel wound up choosing 18 representatives with at least a male and female from each grade level. And they were diverse geographically within the state of Iowa. After congratulating the students, we set up a quarterly meeting schedule and they traveled to the DE for a day to organize, meet with the director and other DE representatives. The state was in the midst of the governor's push for education reform and they decided to write a policy brief from the student point of view based on a blueprint that was released in terms of defining the reform efforts. So the policy brief was co-written and finished in the spring of 2014, and that May I was able to arrange for the students to present the brief to Governor Branstad. And it was an amazing honor to see these students meeting at such a high level and offering their ideas on how they want to be educated. And so the Iowa Learning Council continued on for the next three years until I left the department, and unfortunately no one took up the work after that. But the silver lining, the students then took this momentum and created a student-run nonprofit called the Iowa Student Learning Institute, or ISLE. And they are now working on a national level advocating for student voice in education and offering marginalized students a place to make an impact. So, for example, they have recruited English language learners to the nonprofit, and they speak at conferences around the state of Iowa and sometimes on the national level as well. Mm -hmm. And I cannot express, you know, just how amazing this is. Mm -hmm. I think it's an example of how the adults are usually the ones in the way of the students. And if we give them opportunities and support them, then all one needs to do is watch them make amazing things happen. And this group is a primary example of such. As I listen, one of the things that really stands out to me, and I've said it before, but here so much more is how you value those around you and how you push to give people a voice. And this success of yours with these students is so inspiring because you give them the platform, you give them the opportunity, you give them the voice, and they went on to create a nonprofit. Had they not had that opportunity, this wouldn't have happened. So I really want to honor your leadership here. It's just been incredible. And that's when we first met in that first spring meeting, 
I just emphasize to the students that I'm just the conduit, right. you know, that I don't want to sway you in any way. I don't want to make you feel like this is what you have to do. I just really wanted them to have the chance to make the agendas for our meetings and then to decide what it is that they wanted to do. And again, it just shows that if you can give them the platform, then you will not be disappointed. And this is far surpassed anything <laughs> that I could have ever thought when that took place in 2014. And it's just humbling to watch what they're doing now, even on a national level. It's just remarkable. Right. And I strongly believe that you give these students opportunities, they will impress us, they will dream and create things we never even thought of. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working climate or culture? I feel like I'm giving myself this advice as much as anyone else struggling, but it'd be go easy on yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, we're all impatient, maybe more so now than ever, given modern technology. Mm -hmm. And we want our vision to be established yesterday. Mm -hmm. Realistically, we know that great cultures build slowly over time. It is a grind and a commitment to continuing the conversations, gathering a coalition of like-minded people that help the work. I like the phrase, you know, many hands make light work. And in education, every building has a tribe ready and also impatient to see the organization flourish. You have to keep coming back to the question, as I mentioned earlier, why would talented people want to work here? And continue that inner conversation with yourself and those that you value most within your organization. You have to be reminded of the successes that are taking place because, again, it is so easy for our minds to move toward the things that are not going well. Mm -hmm. So it goes to finding the people whose opinions you value most and can help you see the landscape from a broader perspective. Great. Thank you. Now, Byron, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning now? I would say it's an insatiable desire for continuous improvement. This can also be a drawback at times because nothing ever seems good enough. Lifelong learning really is a daily walk, that almost annoying inner dialogue that won't let you settle or become complacent. We're all having that Faustian conversation, be it personal or professional, and we all have a part of our brain that wants the path of least resistance, but people with a drive for improvement navigate this dialogue so that progress becomes habitual. So what is it that you're learning now? Oh, wow. it's a great question. How can I define that? What I'm trying to focus on the most is what is the purpose of school? That's just a question that I keep coming back to, uh, given the rapid change of pace in how we live today. And when I look at my kindergarten students through my fifth grade students, I just really question what is it that they're going to need when they enter the world as young adults. And it always comes back to, you know, are we providing them with the best opportunities to be successful given what we know and how hard it is to predict what the next big change is going to be, given right. how quickly things develop this day and time. So it really is, what is the purpose of school? And how do we continue to come back to the conversation of, should it be the way it's always been? Or can we do something better 
and provide students with the skills that they're going to need as they become what we hope productive members of society and great thinkers that are approaching uh, this question as well. So Mm -hmm. I would say that's probably the greatest learning that I'm trying to do in the present. And with that in mind, Byron, if there was something you could change in education in the U.S., what would that be? I would abolish standardized testing. Abolish it. Abolish it. Really, all we're doing is revealing levels of poverty. Hmm. Testing is just a way of sorting students that was born out of the United States Army's use of the alpha test to select officer candidates during World War One. And even then, the commission expressed that the tests were limited in their ability to measure achievement. And it's interesting, you know, the eight-year study conducted from 1930 to 1942 by the Aiken Commission involved 30 high schools and over 250 post-secondary institutions that studied the suspension of college admission standards. And the high schools set forth developing curriculum and assessments unique to their population's needs. Today, we would use the terms problem-based learning or inquiry-based learning. The results revealed that public secondary schools can educate all students together, differentiate curriculum and instruction to meet their students' needs, operate in a truly non-standard, democratic way, and produce what we now refer to as college-ready students. Hmm. So the conclusion of this study coincided with the breaking out of World War II. Progressive educational ideas were quickly pushed into the background, and most people have no knowledge of this comprehensive study. So it kind of just sort of disappeared, if you will. Mm -hmm. But what it really revealed is... The students that went on to complete, particularly those that entered the colleges, performed as well, if not better, than students that were held to sort of the standard Carnegie unit means of entering post-secondary institutions. If I had something that I could change, I would abolish standardized testing. I can hear how passionate you are about that. You know, I don't want this to come off as anti-data because Mm -hmm. that's extremely important. But, you know, we just tend to be data rich and information poor. Mm -hmm. We're constantly about getting quantified data and we're talking about human variables. Um, You know, we're not talking about widgets. These are lives that we're trying to create and we want them to be wildly successful But yet we're relying on numerical statistics in terms of uh, defining success. And while there's certainly a role and a place for numbers, for statistical data, it has not served us very well in the large scheme of things. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you so much for that. Now, Byron, what have you read that our listeners should read and why? Well, this could take a while. Okay, I have time. (laughs) Now, I have a degree in literature, so I must go there first. I'd say everyone should dare to read Robert Piercig's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. This text took me a year to read, The Examination of What is Truth, and it is just a remarkable piece of writing. So that would be my first recommendation. I still go back to Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. I really do believe it is the great American novel. Mm -hmm. I love anything by Mark Twain, 
And I certainly would recommend A Brave New World by Aldous Huxley and Beloved by Toni Morrison. Spoken like a true English teacher. So there's my English lens. Uh, professionally, uh, of course, there are so many as well. And I, I say sometimes it's contingent upon where you are currently and what you're reading currently. But I always go back to anything by Seth Godin. I think he's just a remarkable thinker, an entrepreneur, and I, I read his blog daily. I was profoundly influenced by Bowman and Deal's Reforming Organizations. It is just a tremendous wealth of information. I've read everything that Michael Follin has put out. Uh, he does an excellent job of conveying systemic points of view. So those are just a few of my go-to on a professional level. Great. Now, Byron, you have a lot of responsibilities. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? Well, I'm a very active person. I love to work out. I guess I'm a bit of a CrossFit junkie, so I do that nearly every day. I love to mountain bike, road bike. I've run marathons in the past, so I guess there's very much sort of a physical outlet for me. That's my time to go and sort of be reflective and just sort of have that battle with myself mm -hmm. uh, on a mental and a physical end. So that's what I do to make sure I'm staying in a healthy uh, state of mind. And I think working out is incredibly important. Is there anything else that you do? Like, how do you keep pace with your responsibilities on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, usually at the end of the day, you know, after the students are all dismissed and, you know, the dust settles a little bit, I just tend to reflect mm. on, you know, what I've accomplished for today. You know, how many classrooms did I get in today? What did I see that impressed me the most? Mm -hmm. And then what is something that I need to follow up with tomorrow in order to continue the conversation of getting better. Now, I know there's a lot on your plate, so how do you maintain balance? Not very well. Uh, <laughs> you know, I guess everyone that is in a substantial leadership position struggles with this. I've become better. I've just had periods of my work life that were so skewed because the amount of work was just overwhelming and, you know, almost leading to the dangerous point of burning out. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've tried to take away the fact that it's okay to just let some things go. I've decided I'm not going to be a slave to email anymore. And I've created more efficient platforms for communication within the school that have really, really diminished the reliance on email. And that's been huge. And just, again, finding avenues of working smarter, not harder. So I'm definitely in a better place now than I have been in the past. You know, I completed my doctoral studies, and that was a highly intense three-year period of time. And so I guess when I think about where I was previously, I'm way more uh, relaxed than ever. I've eliminated a whole category that's given me a lot of time back. But it's hard not to fill it with what you think you should be doing better. But it's nice to be able to breathe and leave and sort of set it aside until the next morning. I include this question here because there is a great danger of burnout, especially in education. And so I appreciate your input here. Most of us have a hard time with balance. Oh, unfortunately so. To say it's hard work is really 
not doing it justice. Because again, when you're talking about future lives, you can't describe that enough to say just how crucial this is to the world we want to live in as we go forward. It's interesting because I hadn't really thought about it in this sense, but things are so cyclical and it goes back to we were talking about um, instead of saying your door is open, going out and initiating the conversations. One thing that we don't do very well, uh, especially in leadership positions, we tend to tell people, hey, if you need anything, let me know. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, you can always call me if you want to. But, you know, when does that ever really play out? Some people will take you up on it. But most people don't. We get buried in what we're doing, and we just are trying to dig ourselves out. I think about this a lot just in terms of how can I be supportive to individuals, not in any way that I've figured anything out, but just reaching out to them and saying, hey, is there anything I can do for you? If there's something I can help you with, let me know. And again, just being that initiator to reach out and say, hey, I noticed that you are working on this. I've managed to create this great system that's really helped me. If you have any interest in looking at it, I'd love to share it with you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we just don't do enough of that. Mm -hmm. Again, it's kind of like making the home visits. It can feel a little awkward, (laughs) but ultimately it's just about making the first step to say, hey, I really do care Mm -hmm. and I want you to know I care. And, you know, I don't want to invade your space and I don't want to seem like I have all the answers, but, you know, I know we can get better if we work together and I'd love to do that if you're willing. And so I just think that would help us a lot in terms of collaboration. And we have a lot of systems set up that focus on collaboration and that's what makes schools more successful than perhaps they ever have been. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we don't do that very well at the leadership level. You know, we just expect people to make that happen in their buildings, but the collaboration for those individuals tends to be non-existent in a lot of cases. And that's where we need it, I think, the most. Exactly. Thank you so much for that. Now, if you were to go back in time, Byron, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? Wow, this is a great question. I guess it would just be work on building those relationship skills. Technical skills are important, and you certainly are going to need to, quote unquote, know your stuff. But really, it all comes down to getting to know people and getting to understand how they view the world and how they see progress needing to be made. So spend as much time as you can with people who you admire and that you see are doing things in a way that you would like to do things and then emulate them and learn how to be better at listening and interacting with people. That's great advice. Thank you so much for that. Now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't touched on? Just share as much as you can. I think just the more that we can be a connected organization of leaders, then the better off we're all going to be in the long run. And I know that, you know, the majority do this already. But I just think that's the best thing we can do is take the things that we feel are successful and share them with as many people that are willing to be a part of that conversation. That's great. Thank you, Byron, so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. It's my pleasure for sure. Have an amazing day. You too. Thank you, Lily. 
Hey leaders, if you haven't downloaded your copy of the Master Leadership Journal, go to masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ to get instant access and begin growing your leadership with questions that have been curated by top level leaders. I've also included some cool extras for you at masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ.